We're going to be reading from Genesis chapter 48. After this, Joseph was told, Behold, your father is ill. So he took with him his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. And it was told to Jacob, Your son Joseph has come to you. Then Israel summoned his strength and sat up in bed. And Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me and said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you, and I will make of you a company of peoples, and will give this land to your offspring after you for an everlasting possession. And now your two sons who were born to you in the land of Egypt, before I came to you in Egypt, are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine, as Reuben and Simeon are. And the children that you fathered after them shall be yours. They shall be called by the name of their brothers in their inheritance. As for me, when I came from Padan, to my sorrow Rachel died in the land of Canaan on the way, when there was still some distance to go to Ephrath. And I buried her there on the way to Ephrath, that is, Bethlehem. When Israel saw Joseph's sons, he said, Who are these? Joseph said to his father, They are my sons whom God has given me here. And he said, Bring them to me, please, that I may bless them. Now the eyes of Israel were dim with age, so that he could not see. So Joseph brought them near him, and he kissed them and embraced them. And Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face, and behold, God has let me see your offspring also. Then Joseph removed them from his knees, and he bowed himself with his face to the earth. And Joseph took them both, Ephraim in his right hand toward Israel's left hand, and Manasseh in his left hand toward Israel's right hand, and brought them near him. And Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on the head of Ephraim, who was the younger, and his left hand on the head of Manasseh, crossing his hands, for Manasseh was the firstborn. And he blessed Joseph and said, The God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the boys, and in them let my name be carried on and the name of my fathers Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. When Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim, it displeased him. And he took his father's hand to move it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. And Joseph said to his father, Not this way, my father, since this one is the firstborn. Put your right hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He also shall become a people, and he also shall be great. Nevertheless, his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his offspring shall become a multitude of nations. So he blessed them that day, saying, By you Israel will pronounce blessings, saying, God make you as Ephraim and as Manasseh. Thus he put Ephraim before Manasseh. Then Israel said to Joseph, Behold, I am about to die, but God will be with you and will bring you again to the land of your fathers. Moreover, I have given to you rather than to your brothers one mountain slope, that I took from the hand of the Amorites with my sword and with my bow. 
I'd like to pray before we hear from God's word. God, you ordain. God, help us not to be at cross purposes with you. Help us not to, in foolishness, cast judgment upon you and what you do. But God, work in us and make us holy, as we already spoke of with your Holy Spirit. God, that makes so much sense that you would bring about holiness through your Holy Spirit. God, help us to submit to your word. God, fill us with wisdom and joy as we labor for you. God, give us contentment. Help us to praise you, to love you. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're visiting, we have been working our way through these last chapters of the book of Genesis from chapter 37 to chapter 50, and it's getting a sense of uh, the story of Joseph, um, which is part of the larger story of uh, Jacob. And as we've come into these chapters, uh, uh, you'll notice that, um, well, you might have noticed that there's a few references to Jacob dying. Uh, Chapter uh, 47, 48, uh, 49, and the first part of 50 are what we might call the curtain call of Jacob's life. Uh, One of the realities about following Jesus is that uh, following Jesus doesn't just um, involve how we live, it also involves how we die. And not only do we, are we determined about the way that we live for him, but we should also be focused and prepared on the way that we die for him. And so these verses that we read this morning are part of his preparation for dying. Um, we're not going to reflect on them the way that we might normally do if we open this text up. Um, uh, there's this peculiar uh, emphasis in these, this chapter on Jacob wanting to pass on blessings to Joseph's sons. Um, it's not an unusual thing for fathers to do. Uh, He was going to adopt um, uh, Joseph's two sons and make them his own sons, and then he's going to bless them. That would be probably the better way to, or one of the ways that we could look at this text. But what I want to do is uh, pull back a little bit more, and uh, what struck me reading through this again and again was just the reflections of a dying man on his walk with God. His reminiscence of his life lived um, with the living God, and one of the things that we affirm again and again is God is real and that changes everything. Uh, It certainly changes the way that he lived his life and it's reflected in the last days of his life as he's speaking with his boys here. One of the things that I want you to think about and uh, reflect on as you go out of here is um, not a morbid thought but it's it's a helpful thought. It's what truths of God do you want to leave echoing in the heads and the hearts of your children in your dying days? What are the things that you want them to know about you and your relationship with God that have held you and that have kept you and that you have that have sustained you over the years of your life? What are the things if you don't have children that you want to pass on to your friends as they are with you in those days and as they share that uh, those last weeks and months with you? What do you want them to know about God? That's I think the way I want to view the text today is these reminiscence of a dying man to his son and his grandchildren about the place of God in his life. The first thing that we see when he speaks to his children, he says to them in verse 3, Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me. That in itself is just uh, something that has sustained him on his way, this understanding of God the Almighty One. And he says there that he appeared to me. There's the reality that he's a living God. 
is not a dead God. We, we don't worship a, a God that's a tree or a bird or a canoe or a, a, tr- or a truck or something. We worship a living God. And he says, that God appeared to me. And not only did he appear to me, but he spoke to me and he blessed me. And there was no doubt in his mind that God was living and real and vital and was a part of his life. Many of you are familiar with the um, Hebrew transliteration of that word almighty, which is El Shaddai. It was made famous by a song that Amy Grant sung back way back in the days, um, 80s and 90s, I think, El Shaddai, El Shaddai. Um, but El Shaddai is the, the Hebrew translation of this literation of this word almighty. And it's a word that, that stresses a few things. One of the things that it stresses is, is the might and the power of God. And we find this uh, name of God used six times in the book of Genesis. Then it's used a whole bunch of times in the book of Job. And then it's one of the main um, words that John uses to describe God in the book of Revelation. And then there's a couple smatterings along the way. So it's in clusters throughout the word of God. But this El Shaddai, or God Almighty, puts an emphasis on the might and the power of God, a a God who reveals himself to us in the face of a hopeless situation, or when we who are trusting him and walking with him have no real human resources for a task that's before us, or when we're limited by human realities, and it's then that God reveals himself to us as an almighty God. For instance, the first time that this name is used of God is in Genesis chapter 17, verse 1 where God Almighty appears to Abraham. And Abraham, remember, God had said to him, you are going to, through you, you're going to have offspring that will number the stars of the heavens. But he had no children. And in fact, at verse, uh, in chapter 17, we find out that he is old and his wife is old. They are far past childbearing ages. And, and there's no chance, there's no human probability that they will ever have a child of their own. And yet God Almighty reaches into their limitations, their human limitations, and touch their bodies so that they could have a son naturally. That's the first reference of God Almighty who speaks into our helpless situations. It's a word, as I said, that dominates the book of Revelation. I, uh, we've just gone through that as a congregation last year. Um, and the, the, the Greek transliteration of that word is pantokratos. It's just a word that sounds tough. And in fact, some of the young men in our congregation actually had t-shirts made up. And they had Pantokratos written on the t-shirt to remind them that God was the Almighty One. But it's a God who, 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 who sustains us and supports us. We live in this world. This is a nutty world, is it not? This is a world at which we could turn on the news at any given time and we could be fearful justifiably. But when we walk with the living God, when we walk with the almighty God, we know there is no reason to be a fear, afraid, because he is in control and guiding and directing the course of this whole world. That's the message of Revelation. And so it's a term that's used of God's servants when they want to be reassured, when they want to be sustained, when they want to be helped. There's an old hymn that we have, uh, used to sing in the church. We don't sing it often. I can't remember the last time we sang it, but maybe we'll sing it again. Praise to the Lord the Almighty. It's, a, it's just a call to us to reflect on the almightiness of God. Praise to the Lord the Almighty, the King of creation. Oh, my soul, praise him. 
for he is my health and salvation. And then this invitation, come all you who hear, now to his temple draw near, join me in glad adoration. Or then the last verse, praise to the Lord who does prosper and defend you. Surely his goodness and mercy shall daily attend you. Ponder anew what the Almighty can do if with his love he befriends you. It's a call to meditation and to prayer and to reliance on this amazing Almighty God, El Shaddai. You get another sense of this if you jump ahead to verse 7 in chapter 48. And there we have an illustration of another aspect of all sufficiency or of almightiness, which is all sufficiency. God is all that we need. And he mentions in verse 7 the death of Rachel, his beloved wife. And you think, why in the world does he mention the death of his wife 50 some odd years later in a context which really has to do with blessing his son and his grandson. It seems unnecessary. It seems almost out of place that, that the writer, that Moses, would embed that in the text here. But it's interesting to note that if you go back to Genesis chapter 35, where Jacob again refers to God Almighty, and when God Almighty reveals himself to Jacob at Bethel as El Shaddai, the very next event that occurs is the death of Rachel. And so in chapter 35, we have God appearing to Jacob as God Almighty, and then Rachel dies. And then here we have God Almighty being referenced, and then before that section is ended, it says, and he buried Rachel. Could it be that at this point, when he's talking to Joseph, who is Rachel's son, he remembered his wife, and it still hurts. Even though it was a loss that took place over 50 years previously, the grief and the pain of having lost his wife, the one that he loved so much, had walked with him and he had carried it with, it, carried it with him for 50-some-odd years. In this text, it says, God appeared to me as God Almighty, and then I buried Rachel. You see, the pain never does go away, I think, for many who lose a loved one. And it's utterly uncaring for anyone to say to anyone who's grieving, oh, you'll feel better someday. Or you just need to get beyond this a little bit. Or now is the time to stop grieving. You don't find that in Scripture. In fact, here we find a man who has been grieving for over 50 years for a wife that he has lost. And I want us to make the connection between El Shaddai, or God Almighty, and Jacob burying his wife. You see, even in his intense and his lasting grief, he says, the Almighty has walked with me. The all-sufficient one has been with me every step of the way. There is hope because there is El Shaddai. It doesn't take my pain away. It doesn't take my sorrow away. It doesn't take my sadness away. It doesn't heal the wound even. But is it not better to be able to say, El Shaddai appeared to me, and I buried Rachel. Then simply, I buried Rachel. See, as Jacob is talking to Joseph, he is reminding him that God was almighty and God was all-sufficient. 
and in the area of his deepest need of the loss of his wife 50-some years earlier, El Shaddai had been sufficient for him. See, the Almighty invites us to trust him. This is a characteristic of our God, one of the names of God that reveals part of his character. And he invites us to trust him. In the midst of our pain, in the midst of our sorrow, in the midst of our human limitations, to be able to say, but El Shaddai walks with me. Secondly, not only does he refer to God Almighty, but he refers to God of all mercies, or the surprising goodness of God in his life. There's a, 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 a verse in uh, chapter 48, 48, verse 9, which I, I just stopped on. It just, it, it's stuck in my head and has for these last number of weeks as I've been reflecting on this passage. And in verse 9, all of a sudden, um, Joseph, or Jacob is, uh, Joseph has come, and he's come with his two sons, his, Jacob's grandsons. And Jacob's response to him is, he says, I never expected to see your face. Remember, he had thought Joseph had been killed. He says, I never expected to see your face. And behold, God has let me see your offspring also. That is a surprising goodness of God. That's something that just, it caught Jacob a sort of off guard or not off guard. Jacob recognized that as a mercy of God in his life. And you see, one of the things I believe that Jacob had trained himself to do over the course of his life is to see the mercies of God as they came up daily in his life. And this is just one instance of it. You know, the mercies of God are every day, everywhere in our life. But because of the way we think of ourselves and because of the way that we look at the world in which we live, we often miss the mercies of God that are evident everywhere in our life. The Bible makes it plain that the mercies of God are not rare and random events in the life of God's people. Rather, we learn the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies, what? Never come to an end. And what? They are new every morning. Do you see the mercy of God as never ending in your life? Do you see the mercies of God as new every morning or every day in your life? Or do you have trouble detecting them? And I think we have trouble detecting the mercy of God because we're so distracted, because we're so prideful, because we're so focused on our strengths and our abilities. Do we understand what mercy is? A real sort of simple definition of mercy is mercy is getting what I don't deserve. That's what mercy is. Mercy is getting what I don't deserve. Well, we really live in a culture of entitlement. And we really see ourselves as deserving of everything. And, and, and we've earned everything. And so for us to actually see mercy and to, to, to recognize that, that this is something that has come to me, even though I don't deserve it, is something that is foreign to our natural way of thinking. We have to cultivate this reality, which is true reality. 
It's the spiritual plane in which we live. There's, there's the reality that God is the one that sends the rain, that gives us strength, that gives us brains, that gives us health, that makes the rain come, that makes the ground produce all this kind of stuff that we enjoy every day. Everything that we experience is an undeserved mercy. Scriptures are dotted with reference to, references to a God who is merciful. And these mercies are to have an appealing or a drawing influences on our life. Paul writes to the Romans and he says, I appeal to you by the mercies of God. What he's trying to say to them is, look, look at your life. Look at all the ways in which God has been gracious to you even though you haven't deserve, deserved it. I appeal to you based on the mercies of God. And then a little bit later, another author says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies. Notice it's not singular, it's plural. The God of all mercies and the Father of mercies. You see, God is not stingy. It's not that God has, you know, he's, he's got like 20 mercies for Paul in any given year. Oh, okay, here, here's a mercy. And then, you know, I go another couple months and I'm getting down and bummed out. And here's another mercy. No, they are never ceasing. They are never ending. They are day in, day out. The mercies of God, they come from the Father of all mercies. And so when you look at the various instances of favor, or you enjoy bounty in your life, what do you think? never thought you would do this for me, God. I never thought I would have this house, Father. I never thought I would drive this truck, Lord, and I, I, I do. I have got a truck, and it's our truck, Kathy reminds me. But when I'm washing it, or almost daily when I'm driving it, I say, thank you, Father, for this truck. I don't deserve it, but I like it. And I'll steward it to the best of my ability for you. Thank you, Father, for our house. It's not a big house, but it's more than enough. Thank you, Father, for your mercies. Day in, day out. Kathy and I probably, there's not a day goes by where we don't say, Father, thank you for this home that we live in. I've been waiting for surgery for a number of months. And uh, last couple months, things got worse in my life. And so I had uh, just thought, well, I need to phone the doctor and see if we can bump this up a little bit. And um, I'm praising God that I got a phone call just uh, last week that they've put me on a short list and they've actually given me a date. That was a mercy of God to me. Out of nowhere, I don't deserve it. There's so many other people that need surgery, but God just said, here, Paul, here's your date. And I thank the Lord, so I'll be gone for a couple weeks, nothing major, just back surgery. And uh, Barry will look after things, but a mercy of God. And I think if we think about um, the mercies of God, if you, if you understand what God gives you undeservingly, wouldn't it just fill us with a contentment? I, I don't need to stress. I don't need to worry. I don't need to earn. I don't need to try hard because my God is a merciful God. Oh, I'll get up in the morning and I'll go to work and I'll work to the best of my ability. But God just pours into me so much. And it all to cultivate contentment. What about a blow to our own pride and self-inflation to understand really that all that we have 
everything that we have comes to us from the hands of a merciful God to we who are undeserving. And what a content filler in our worship. You know, we should never, ever be able to walk into the presence of God in a corporate way like this and have nothing to worship God about. Every one of us, every time we walk in this auditorium, could take out a piece of paper and write down five or six mercies of God that we can recall from that week. And those would fill our worship to God as we praised Him and as we worshiped Him. One of the lines in that song I referenced, Praise to the Lord the Almighty, says, Praise to the Lord above who above all things so wondrously reigneth, sheltering you under his wings and so gently sustaineth. Have you not seen all that is needful has been sent by his gracious ordaining? You see, there's a challenge there, isn't there? Have you not seen? It's not that the mercies of God are not overflowing in our lives. It's that we don't see them. Jacob had trained his eyes to see the mercies of God poured out daily in his 147 years. There's a third reference to his God. Not only does he reference God as God the Almighty, God the All-Sufficient One, not only does he reference him as the God of all mercies, but in verse 15 and 16 there are three sort of um, references to God there as he's about to bless them. Threefold description of God. God is not sort of a, a, a just arrives on the scene now. He's a God that, is, that has been um, existent before this world ever was. And he hints at that when he says he is the God of Abraham and Isaac. And before Jacob walked, his father and his grandfather walked with God. I understand, but I don't understand how we should sometimes think, well, God is distant and God is harsh. We don't get that from the Bible. Rather, we get a, a picture of a God who is intimately involved in the lives of those who commit to him and is desiring to be intimately involved with his creation. Notice it says, as he's talking of his father and his grandfather, it says, and they walked with God. There's something about walking that is unique. If you jog with somebody, it's hard to have a conversation. You know, and you never, people who jogging never look happy. Nor do people who are riding bikes for that matter. But you know, you, you can go on a bike ride with someone and you know, you're behind them or they zoom ahead or you got to catch up or you get a flat tire. You can go for a jog with someone and you're out of breath and you go, <laughs> and you keep on going. But when you walk with somebody, there's intimacy. You know, you can stop and look at something together. You can, you can walk for hundreds of yards and not say a word, but just the presence of that person beside you is all that you need. It's this beautiful image that he says, as my father and grandfather walked with God, so I too have walked with God. What a, what a gift to give your children and your grandchildren to tell them I have walked with God. But then he says something even more brilliant. He says, and God has been my shepherd. God has been my shepherd. This is an image that was really familiar to Jacob. He was a shepherd after all, and so he understood the intimacy involved in being a shepherd and caring for the sheep. 
And we understand there were shepherds that when they came down to Egypt and they went to before Pharaoh, Joseph says, now tell Pharaoh that you're shepherds and he'll give you this land and he'll make you look after their sheep. Most of us here probably haven't had a, um, uh, a first-hand um, contact with a shepherd or sheep, but we know about, there's enough stuff in our culture even today that we're familiar with, you know, a shepherd and his staff and little Bo Peep and her sheep and they follow along. But we understand the care. And we understand the image that's being made, uh, that, that's being described here. Luke uh, 15 has three beautiful parables. One of the parables is a parable of a lost sheep. And it's saying there was a shepherd, and he had a hundred sheep. He loved his sheep. But he noticed as he was counting them at some point in the day that there was only 99. So it says he left the 99, and he went out looking for that one lost sheep. And eventually he found the sheep. And he didn't just come back and put it in the fold. He came back and he told all his friends, he says, you got to celebrate with me. This sheep that I had lost or that went astray, I found, and he's now part of the fold. Let's have a party. There's just a sense of familiarity and of love and of affection and of completeness when all the sheep are there. We know that Jesus has called himself the good shepherd. And he actually puts himself in harm's way for us. Because he says, I will lay down my life for my sheep. He's the chief shepherd of the flock. And so Jacob refers to his relationship with God as one of he who has been my shepherd. We're going to read in a couple of moments. You're going to recite it with me. If you don't know, that's all right. Listen to people around you. But we're going to recite Psalm 23 together. It's in page 458 in the Bible. in front of you if you want to do it. But I just want to give you a quick outline of the psalm. It begins in verse 1. The Lord is my shepherd. I find it just so encouraging that it doesn't say our shepherd. There's a personal reality to God's care of me. Verse 2, he provides for my food and my drink and my rest. He makes me lie down. Verse 3, he restores my soul, my spiritual vitality. He leads me in right paths. Verse um, verse 4, or he doesn't desert me when things get scary or difficult. Verse 5, he protects and provides for me against all odds. Verse 6, he is for me now and forevermore. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. Will you say it with me now? Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. He has been my shepherd. And then he says, all my life, even to this day. This just wasn't a fleeting thought as Jacob is talking he says, for 147 years, for 1,764 months, for 53,655 days, God has been my shepherd. 
And Jacob, without hesitation, would concur with the psalmist who said, I have been young and now I am old, yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken or his children begging for bread. This is crazy love, isn't it? This is, this is beyond imaginable care. And not only has his care been with us all the days of our life, it was with us before the foundation of the world, and it's even with us when we were in the womb. Because the psalmist there says, when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. You see, when you trust in God, he will shepherd you all the days of your life. Certainly, Jacob was aware and thankful for a God who shepherded him every day of his life. I don't have time. You need to think about he uses another word. It says the angel in verse 16, the angel who has redeemed me. That can be your homework for this week. Dig into that a little bit and ask yourself, well, what is he referring to when he talks about that? How has the angel of God been with him? But what he wants his son and grandchildren to know is that there is a presence that comes into your life when you trust God. There is an intimacy that one can have with the living God who made this world and everything in it. And there is a protection that he gives to us as our shepherd and as our angel. And lastly, he's a covenant God. And as a result, it's a costly decision of ours to follow him. I want to go back to the beginning of the chapter and then we'll jump to the end of the chapter. As the scene comes to a close in chapter 48, it began this way. It says, after this, Joseph was told, behold, your father is ill. Last week we said that's not just, uh, he's got a cold. This is, he's ill. You better get here. Get on the next plane. Come home. Your dad is ill. So Joseph took with him his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, and it was told, Jacob, your son Joseph has come to you. Then Israel summoned his strength and sat up in bed. Do you find it a little bit interesting here that Joseph is here with his father in these last days seeking his blessing? He wants his father to speak provision on him. He wants his father to speak protection on him. He wants his father to bless him in the days that were to come. But he didn't really need to do this, did he? You see, on a physical perspective, he's the second in command in all of Egypt. He could have set up his boys with anything they would have ever dreamt of for generations to come. He could have given them the best education. He could have ensured that they would have had the best jobs. He could have made sure that they had the best wives. He could have made sure that they had the best of the land. He could have set them up with the best that Egypt had to offer. He could have given them a life that few people on earth would have ever known. But by this action of going to Jacob for a blessing, what he is doing is he's turning his back on Egypt. Consider for a moment how significant this would have been for Joseph. 
He's turning his back on everything that Egypt has to offer. And he's going up to his father. To his father, who is, we looked at last week, a sojourner, a pilgrim. He's got nothing but a promise. No land, no bank account, nothing. But Joseph says, I'm going to turn my back on Egypt. Because all I need, the only thing I need, is the blessing of my father in my life. And that's a costly decision, is it not? It's a costly thing to be in a relationship with a covenant God. It's like a moment a, hundred, a few hundred years later when Joshua is speaking to the people of Israel and they're all running after idols of all kinds of things and there's been, a, you know, there's been stuff that's been going on and finally Joshua lays it on the line and he says, okay, choose this day. Who are you going to serve? Or it's like Moses. When by faith, he said, when by faith he was grown up, he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. That's what Joseph was saying. I turned my back on Egypt, and I put all my eggs in the basket of the God of my father, Jacob. And not only in the God of my father, but in the people of my father. This is the covenant people of God. You see, the covenant people of God are, are not the elite of Egypt. They're not the sort of upper echelons, the best dressed, the best connected, the, the most powerful, the most famous. They're, they're, they're not that group of people. He's saying, I'm going to identify myself with aliens. Not in the literal sense of the word, but with the aliens in the land, with, with sojourners, with, with people who don't belong here, with people who don't have a stake in these lands. And he's saying, these are going to be my people. These are going to be my folk. These are going to be my family. This is my covenant God, and he's their covenant God, and therefore we're going to go together. And the contrast couldn't be any starker. You see, when you join yourself to God, the God of the Bible, you don't just join yourself to God. You join yourself to God's people, a company of the redeemed. As we have it here at Parksville Fellowship Baptist Church, you join yourself to a fellowship. And I know some people balk at this. They balk at the company of God's people. And they want very much to say, well, it's just me and Jesus. You know, as long as I can just have Jesus. Just give me Jesus, but don't give me Jesus' people. That's the problem with following Christ, they say. It's the people. And I know what you're thinking, because I think it sometimes, too. We're a nutty bunch. Christians are. We're, we can be sometimes a strange group of people. We can be mean. We can be divisive. We can disappoint. We can be misunderstood. But we're family. And when you join yourself to God, the people of God come with it. And that's why I have a hard time wrestling with people who never want to be connected with the body of Christ. I don't see that anywhere in the Bible. We are called the body of Christ. We are called his flock, his building. 
there's a togetherness about us, even though we might not be the most attractive of people. So these are the people of Abraham and Isaac, the people of Jacob. These are the people that Joseph wants to identify with and wants his sons to identify with. And finally, in verse 21, he says, Behold, I am about to die, but I love this, but God will be with you and bring you up again into the land of your fathers. There it is again, the presence of God. You see, it's something he knew. He had walked with God. He knew the presence of God. I wish more of us would pass on, even before we come to dying, the fact that God is a living God and there is a presence. He is with us and I want you to know the presence of God in your life. And not only that, I want you to trust his promises. Here he's saying, I want you to put your trust in the God who will bring you again to this land. And then he offers him a chunk of land that he'll never see. Because Joseph will die without ever receiving his inheritance on earth. I think these are so... This is a caring grandfather. What more can a grandfather leave his children than these incredible reflections on a life lived with God? El Shaddai, a God of mercy, a God who has shepherded me, a God who has called me into covenant with his people. A number of years ago, when our boys were quite young, uh, seven, nine, and eleven, I think it was around there, Kath and I had the opportunity to go to Israel. And it was a big trip for us. Um, I think at that time Israel was a little bit um, restless. Well, I think it's always a little bit restless. But part of the preparation was we just wanted to redo our will. We, we kind of look at our will every two or three years, and, or every time we go on a trip together, we, we make sure that our will is up to date. And So this time we were going to leave our boys. It's amazing. We are going to leave our boys with a young couple. <laughs> for two weeks. And uh, so we wrote up our will, and we included, though, there in there a little phrase with a tiny explanation. And the phrase that we put in our will was simply, be there. See, of all the things that we could leave them, of all the things that we wanted our boys to know, of all the possessions that we had, which were very little, the most important thing and the final encouragement we wanted ringing in our boys was a spiritual encouragement. We want you to be there. Death is going to happen. It's going to happen to all of us one day. And we didn't know if it would happen on the flight or somewhere in Israel. But what we wanted our boys to know is that on resurrection morning, we wanted to see them. We wanted them to know that we would be looking for them. We wanted them to know that all that matters was that they be there. I think this is a little bit what Jacob is saying. He wants to give them an attractive picture of God so that they would turn their backs on Egypt and put their trust in a covenant God and a covenant people and believe the promise that had sustained him for 147 years that one day God would give them the land. So what reflections come to your mind what reflections will come out of your heart and your mouth in your last weeks? Do you live on this spiritual plane where you view life as God in control of it, God guiding it, God directing it, God uh, ordaining all of it, even though we live on the physical plane? What truths about God dominate your life?
What truths about God shape your pilgrimage now as you're walking along, as you're cultivating a relationship with the living God? You'd be in great company if you chose. El Shaddai appeared to me. You'd be in great company if you chose a God of all mercies. God, I never, ever thought that you would let me see this. You'd be in great company if you said, He has been my shepherd all the days of my life and even to this day. You'd be in great company if you were able to say, I have walked with him, I have covenanted with him, and I have joined his people. Father, we thank you for your word today. We thank you for its uh, help in our lives and in our, the world in which we walk. Father, would you help us come to grips with the fact that you are real? It's not just a joke. It's not just something that a bunch of Christians have made up. You are the living God. And what's even more staggering is that we can be in a relationship with you. We can walk with you. You will shepherd us. You will care for us. You will protect us. You will provide for us. Oh, Father, would you teach us to be dependent upon you, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.